Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So last week, we discussed the early part of the war and the initial military campaigns, which, as we noted, did not go well for the Protestants. And like I mentioned at the end, there seems to be a bright spot in the form of the founding or creation of a new dynasty, the Palatine Dynasty. So, getting back into it, I'm going to cover Frederick V, who is going to be central to this episode. He was born on August 26, 1596, near Amberg. He was the son of Frederick IV, and after his father passed away, he took his role in 1610. There was not much of note that he did sort of before the war, but his most well-known act, I should say, is funding the Hortus Palatinus in, in Heidelberg. It was basically a very famous and popular garden. Uh, I'll post an image on the website. The most important thing to know about him before we get into his participation in the war is he was relatively indecisive and didn't have too much of a backbone. He was not a particularly ambitious man and not particularly well-known as a leader. The most interesting fact I found about him, actually, was he was actually married to the daughter of King James I, a.k.a. the King of England and Scotland, the successor of Elizabeth. He was, yeah, so he was the son-in-law of King James. I just, I didn't know that either. I just kind of found that funny. But with that biography covered, we'll move on to the actual crown, I guess. With the virtually unopposed ascension of Ferdinand to the throne of the HRE, the Protestants that were rebelling against him moved to deny him the crown of Bohemia and Hungary. Today we're just going to cover Bohemia, but we'll get to Hungary eventually. The way they did this was they effectively got the five regions of Bohemia to agree to a confederation based on nobility rather than any form of republican populism. So it was basically an elective monarchy. One thing to note was, unlike seemingly before where one or two regions were dominant, each region was technically given a right to vote on the ruler of the kingdom. Generally, the rulership of the HRE was several regions would be dominant and many others' votes really wouldn't matter. And while the Bohemian Confederation could not secure their full involvement, uh, they managed to get the Protestant Austrians to act as allies, mainly because the Austrians wanted to get concessions from Ferdinand. If they won this rebellion, they could get more concessions and stuff they wanted out of the ruler of the HRE. However, some of the members of this new kingdom felt coerced into joining, especially the Moravians, who, as a price for their support, they asked for special rights to maintain their own laws in, in a diet, which, I, like I mentioned before, was is their governing body. The rebels, now sort of fully controlled Bohemia, claimed Ferdinand was not their king, and then they stated that the vote of his status in 1617 as the heir to the empire was unconstitutional, and therefore his claim to the throne was void, and he was never the ruler ever. After establishing this setup, they started to look for people who could be crowned as the King of Bohemia. There were a couple of candidates before Frederick V, as we'll get to, but they were either not good or they were not interested in the crown instead of using the kingdom and their crowning to get some sort of political goal or their own personal political ambitions. The only viable candidate was Frederick V, who was the son of, who, like I said before, was the son of Frederick IV, who I mentioned before was the man that Christian of Anhalt served. Being a man of little backbone, he was torn between taking the crown and not taking the crown. In the end, he took it, but there's a couple theories as to why he took it. The first one was his wife, who, again, was the daughter of King James, seemingly henpecked him into taking the crown. Henpecking, for those of you who don't know the phrase, is like overly domineering wife forcing her husband to do things. That theory is considered unlikely and political propaganda against him. Another thing that seemingly is a little more accurate is James I and the Dutch promised to provide support monetarily and militarily for the rebels if he took the crown. 
again, this was a empty promise at this point, and as I will see later, it wasn't exactly delivered upon, but at least this was the theory, and it was a nice offer, at least on paper. The last theory on why he took the crown was Christian of Anhalt was supposedly heavily invested in the heavy metal industry of Upper Palatinate, and basically he got him in the war to protect his investment due to uh, Frederick V being the ruler of the Palatinate. But a lot of those theories aren't 100% sure, and there's still debate on those. But one thing we're definitely sure of, well, we meaning like Dorians, was that there was a rise of religious fervor upon hearing the news of a potential crowning of the King of Bohemia. It was sort of a prophesized golden age under Ferdinand that would last until, until his death, where upon sort of his death, he would be the last emperor before the Day of Judgment had arrived. Which, I mean, I find that theoretically convincing, just weird from our perspective due to sort of the secularization of society since then but i just find it strange that the fervor of end end of days would cause him to be convinced to get to take the crown although as i'll mention now that's not the only reason why there also was evidence of dynastic ambition to a certain extent in particular Frederick named his fourth son, Ruperecht, who, for those of you who know English history, you might know him as Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Uh, for those of you not in the know, uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine was a royalist cavalry commander during the English Civil War. Well-known, very popular. I'll, I'll post an image of him. Again, that's beyond the scope of this podcast, but just another instinct factoid of I didn't know that either. But back on topic, this was a dynastic ambition, or seemingly so, because the only emperor of the Palatine, Palatine dynasty was someone who ruled in the 15th century, aka was voted as the ruler of the HRE. So this gave the, the image that he definitely was claiming dynastic promises due to, you know, naming yourself after a famous ruler of the past. His oldest son was then designated heir in April 1620, but that's, you know, a year away from when he gets crowned. He then traveled to Prague to get crowned, and there was a lot of fanfare and cheering because it seemed like, oh, it was a new wave, a strong wave of support for the rebels would come. And the interesting thing is he was actually crowned by an Utraquist, which I didn't talk about them, but they're another one of the branches of Protestantism that existed. I will read an excerpt from... And I will read an excerpt from his letter talking about his claim to the throne. Now, we do not at this time or in this place wish to discuss everything that has been done, attempted, or practiced in this regard in past years throughout the entire Roman Empire, nor in what difficult circumstances the Empire even now finds itself, for such a discussion will find us further sufficient expositions later, when and where appropriate. But concerning in particular the worthy crown of Bohemia and its incorporated territories is quite undeniable and recognized that here in the Roman religion greatly waned over time while the light of the Holy Gospel dawned and with that great difficulties frequently arose from which such as in the end the only remaining solution was to make a great effort to maintain the peace through the issuance of certain compacts concessions and, and exemptions so that the peaceful coexistence in human society may not be completely dissolved and severed on account of the different opinions on religion so long as things persisted in such terms people on all sides were content but the above mentioned hot-headed people were unable to abide such peaceful prosperity instead as indicated above they preferred to push things to extremes rather than set aside or abandon their deeply rooted intentions of bringing everything back under the spiritual domination of the Pope and the secular domination of, the, of a foreign power. From this, 
it then came to pass that throughout the territories, these territories, religious grievances increased daily, especially concerning the letter of majesty, as these people constantly perpetrated or practiced one act of violence after another, knocking down and enclosing newly built evangelical churches and instigating threats against the estates, withdrawing from them their unjustly entitled defenses persecuting the poor subjects in an unchristian and most heinous manner and threatening people of both high and low estate of great with great hardships dishonor danger to life and limb and loss of every worldly possession then when the people sought to use whatever means were available to resist such measures all of which can be read above in which writings published by the states in question they were met with the edge of a sword and open hostility so that henceforth the oft-mentioned crown of bohemia as well as well as its incorporated territories and provinces and other ad admirable neighboring lands was painfully in, in, in large part ravaged devastated ruined by fire and sword and so to speak put to ashes in context that was in reference to all the claims of abuse that were done by the apology of the people who committed the defendation of prague basically the first part you missed was them just listing out all the grievances or him reiterating the grievances. In effect, he was just reinstating or restating all of the claims of the apology slash defense of the defendation of Prague and sort of basically saying there is no peace due to all these abuses. So now that we've covered the crowning of Frederick V, we're now going to move on to the war effort as a whole. So many had hoped for a large gathering of support now that there was a king backing this rebellion. However, there was not much to be gained. No one really gave their support. Some members of the Protestant Union actually resigned from the Union itself in the face of this lack of support coming in immediately. Basically, they saw no hope in this rebellion succeeding, so they wanted to get out before things got really bad. The Dutch, with their promise of money and men, they eventually allowed two regiments of... The Dutch eventually gave the rebellion around two regiments of Dutch and Englishmen. The term British wasn't a thing back then because it was still England, Scotland, they were all separate crowns at this point still. So they gave them those troops and also some of the money that they promised them, although it never came into full. And by August 1620, even even that money had stopped. There were also a lot more signs of disunity. In Berlin, for example, some Protestants feared that the Dutch troops getting involved would force Calvinism on them, which would create more disunity because many of them were Lutherans or Utraquists. So there was still a lot of conflict between the various Protestant sects, which did not bode well for the future. Even James did not support Frederick. While he did promise sort of men and money, he never really got sending it. He would always say words and, you know, encourage him on a moral sense, but what Frederick wanted was men and guns, but those never came. One idea that was going through James was he viewed himself as almost above the conflict on the continent. Basically, this, there's a mentality of England was an arbitrator for the continent, so they wouldn't back one side, they'd, they'd help with negotiations to be a third party, but they wouldn't be actively involved, at least governmentally. And the HRE, aka Ferdinand, would not accept any offer unless James could restrain the rebellion and keep the sort of fighting from happening, which James could not. So basically, England sat back and watched this war happen and didn't really do anything, at least under James. Palatine then sort of committed its full resources to defend its own territory, so it, it really couldn't commit a lot of forces to assisting the overall army under Thurn and the other commanders. Added to the lack of unity was his wife was not trusted by the nobility of Bohemia due to her having a taste for French fashion, and she refused to learn German. Usually it's a bad sign when the spouse of a ruler, especially a king, doesn't want to learn about the native people 
it's sort of a symbolic gesture to her husband's lands and, and such, so it wasn't a good look for him. He maintained enough popular support that people weren't turning against him, but it did not help the Allies that seeing his wife refuse to bohemianize, Germanize, whatever you want to call it. And adding to this issue of disunity, Frederick stated that he accepted loyal Catholics and that they should be left alone, but many of them were, were still attacked and assaulted in sort of minor ways, even despite those promises. And eventually, the lack of money forced Frederick to take Catholic lands and estates in order to fund the war, which did not make him look good to the Catholics in, in the uh, Bohemia. Although, that wasn't his biggest religious problem. As I mentioned earlier with the divide of Protestants, he had a lack of the subtlety in the diplomatic relations between the various Protestant sects, so he had an issue keeping them from coming to blows. One major incident was a group of Utraquists stormed St. Vitus' Cathedral in Prague, and basically they committed iconoclasm, which iconoclasm is destroying icons, which is like statues of angels, any sort of statuary or fancy idols of a religious figure. It's a whole debate among Christianity and long-running, but basically they went in and stormed the cathedral and destroyed, destroyed a lot of old medieval artwork and symbols, which... Even to the other Bohemian Protestants who didn't like Catholicism, they saw this cathedral as important to historical identity. So this was sort of a, hey, we're still Protestant, but this is still important to our culture, which created more issues. One of the major effects of the lack of unity was it threatened the stability of the rebellion and any chance of it succeeding, which, as some of you can tell just listening to me, it does not sound good currently for the rebels. There were problems on the imperial side, but they were definitely less pronounced than this. But this was not looking good for the rebels. One problem this actually created was in the military structure of the rebellion. The method that the rebels used to recruit an army was local leaders would call upon troops. Theoretically, they could call upon militia people in villages, but most often they would pay mercenaries. Those guys would be sent to a common area to gather a larger army. So the lack of unity made it hard for leaders to recruit troops. And two, the lack of unity also was a problem with organizing the military. So Frederick called on 30,000 men to serve in the army, but he could only get around 12,000 of them or so, which is, for a calling a levy effectively, is not a lot, and in a war that's slowly escalating to the numbers, this was not good. And those 12,000 men were mostly professional mercenaries. And this was just in sort of the Palatinate and some of the areas under his control. There was around 3,000 men that were sent by Silesia and Moravia in Upper Lower Austria, which was at the Protestants of that area, could only send a couple thousand men, which even by the end of this sort of rebellion, they never fully mobilized. And sort of lastly, the foreign troops that came in were mostly around six to 7,000, which is mostly in Western Bohemia, as it was sort of the easiest for them to get to there. At most, this army could have around like 20,000 men. The other difficulty in which that especially Thurn had, and Christian of Anhold had, was that because each commander had his own troops, or was sent their own troops, it was hard to create a standardized sort of army due to each one having their own way they fought. Because some of them went by the older method, which the Imperial is used, which was bigger pike formations, that sort of deal. It's more the organization and their structure, versus... Christian of Anhalt, who was studied up on the Dutch method, which we today know as, as sort of the, the line, as we see in like the 18th century, and those sort of the Revolutionary War and that sort of era. And I will cover the full Dutch model in a later episode, but those methods called upon more professional soldiers and a certain way of organizing that this just couldn't, this couldn't match. So there was a lack of cohesion among the troops. 
due to some of them coming from a different doctrine of warfare. And that also added to the, the problem of each commander had an ego and, and their own stuff going on. So there was a lot of clashing among commanders and their personalities. Thurn was generally regarded as the head commander of the army, but unfortunately, his focus was on furthering the goal of the rebellion, which meant that, for example, when he went to Prague, he had to separate from the sort of the main army and separate the troops out under someone else's command, meaning he wasn't in control anymore. So he couldn't really control what the other guy was doing. It was up to them independently to, to decide what they were doing, and that could lead to a lack of cohesion among the general strategy of the war. The last major problem that the Rebellion faced on a systemic level was there was a constant shortage of money on the Rebellion side. This was an issue of Bohemia and taxation due to, for one, people just didn't really have money at this point, and people were getting sort of taxed double the rate at this point. This was a common thing during war as many countries would tax people higher, but people just didn't have the money, so the rebels constantly relied upon donations by the state owners of Bohemia or coerced loans, for example, from the Jewish community of Prague, who they technically gave it with the permission, but it was very much a if you don't give money, bad things might happen. I mean, this wasn't just against the Jewish community, although there was, you know, rampant anti-Semitism throughout Europe at this time, so that would have been a part of it. But this was a general thing of people who weren't giving money could potentially be asked very nicely to give money. Well, to, to add a funny note to this whole money problem, the rebels basically found Emperor Rudolf's art collection, but they realized they couldn't sell this due to buyers not being easy to find, and trying to sell imperial stuff was not going to sell well. For one, it didn't look great, and two, no one had the money to really pay for that, because the HRE, the emperor, wasn't going to pay for the back. He wasn't going to fund his enemy. So it basically sat around like, oh, what do we do with this? We can't destroy it, but send it around. So to teal deer this, to summarize this, the rebels had a few major problems that were causing potentially crippling issues. That included a lack of money, very little international support, there was religious disunity, and conflict among military commanders. This was not a good sign for the future, and especially as you saw last week, the military campaigning did not go well. We'll see in the future how it goes, but it's not looking bright at the moment. So, I want to thank you for listening. Remember to check out my website for images that I will post in reference if people need visual aids at 3decadesoftragedy.com, a Facebook page of the same name, and you can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. That's the number three, not the word three. And, and for those of you who haven't heard, I now have a Patreon up and running. I will I will post a link to the Patreon if you have a few bucks free and you want to support me. So that I wouldn't mind. But if you don't, I know times are tough right now due to COVID. So I'll be putting everything up for free, same time. The benefits will be listed on the Patreon page. If you do, thank you. If not, well, you'll hear the next episode in two weeks. But next time, we'll be covering the Crown of Hungary and other countries that were involved to a lesser extent in the war, or could have been. I'll see you next time. <laughs>